Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My guest today is Rachel Oliver. I had the opportunity to meet Rachel a while back. She is a member of the Real Estate Investment Network, and I happened to get into a conversation with her and was just so impressed. It was like she had me at hello. And I started getting into conversation with her, got to know her a little bit better, had her speak on our stage. She's a great speaker. And she shared with me some of her story. And I said, man, I just got to get you on this podcast and have a conversation with you. Our listeners will get a lot out of it, I'm sure. So I've invited her here today to have this conversation and to share with you some of her story. You know, as a youth, when she was a young lady at the age of 17 and she moved away from home, Rachel's been on this very interesting journey and has taken her down several paths and she's come to many forks in the road. She's here today to just share some of her story, but more importantly, I've asked her to share some of her lessons and the perspective that she's gained along the way. From a time when she graduated York University with her BA, to landing a job with Pepsi in Russia during perestroika. I mean, how cool is that? To surviving breast cancer, which is even cooler and more awesome. And then authoring her international best-selling book on RTO real estate, Rachel shows up as a woman who just lives her life with intention. Her rent-to-own business, Clover Properties, is her vehicle for her to help families reach their home ownership goals. But it's just an example of how Rachel lives a life based on one of her core beliefs of helping and supporting others to succeed. The bio I can share here is only really a quick snapshot of what Rachel has done. But in my conversation with her today, I think we're going to discover who she is as a mother and a daughter, a wife, a business owner, and certainly even far more than that. So briefly, Rachel is a full-time real estate entrepreneur. She's the author of her best-selling book, The Rent-to-Own Essential Guide for Home Buyers. She's an engaging speaker, and she's definitely a gifted mentor. And after 20 years of having an exciting marketing management career, Rachel actually replaced her J-O-B, her job income, using the rent-to-own investment strategies. In 2010, she and her husband, Neil, who she affectionately nicknamed Mr. No, began investing in rent-to-own income properties because they just didn't want to be landlords. She had a real strong commitment to raising the bar for success with RTO deals. And that's what led Rachel and her husband to actually re-engineer the traditional rental model so that they could help even more credit-challenged homebuyers to get ahead. Today, Rachel and her husband own and operate Clover Properties. And that has become one of the top rent-to-own companies that specializes exclusively in turnkey RTO income properties 
and facilitates joint venture opportunities. Join me now as I chat with Rachel Oliver. Well, good day, Rachel. Welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. I am incredibly excited to have you on the show, as I am with all of the guests, but particularly because I've gotten to just recently actually gotten to know you at a level that uh, has just intrigued me. You've been on our stage a few times. You're a great speaker. You're a wonderful educator. And so I'm excited about what we're about to talk about today. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. It is an honor to be here. Now, Rachel, as I like to do, I don't want to talk about your bio, but you know, just quickly for the listeners, if we were to ask you, what's your elevator pitch? When people ask you, what do you do? Uh, what's your elevator pitch? What's your answer to that question? Because it's, it's pretty diverse what you do. I typically say that I help to move people into a better life. The way I do it, obviously, is through the rent-to-own process. But really, I work with people who've had some sort of a personal setback and are trying to get back on their feet and want to do it with home ownership. And to them, it's something that they covet. It's something that will give them stability. And I love to be a source of, of a helping hand to get them there. So when people ask me, what do you do? I say, I help move people into a better life. And of course, it prompts additional questions about the how. Of course. What's interesting about that is you're looking at your intention of helping people. And so your answer to the question is, I help people. That, you know, short and sweet, it's in the world of real estate and rent to own. But that's not a, necessarily a common philosophy. Uh, because I had Alan Kahn just recently on the show, and we talked about purpose and we talked about intention. So this philosophy of my business intention is to support people. What you didn't say was I make money doing rent-to-own business. And so that's, to me, a very advanced, in my experience, that's a bit of an advanced philosophy. How did you come to that way of thinking in terms of building your business? I think it's really... Um the essence of who I am. And from when, as far as back as I could remember, when I hit certain roadblocks in my own life, you know, as early as being 17 years old, there were people along the way that helped and their help really made a huge difference, a positive difference in how my life shaped up. And I really uh, feel that all the choices that I've made up until now have really come from a place of wanting to help others, just like others helped me. I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't meet certain people who saw an opportunity to help me, an opportunity to elevate me. So the only thing I know is not just how to receive that, but how to give it back. My show is really about coming across and meeting with people that seem quite ordinary, and yet they do extraordinary things. And you certainly fall into that category. You know, you've got no ego around you that I've come across. You're just Rachel, and you're powerful in how you treat people. And I've been very, very impressed with that. So where you are today, but you talked about back even when you were 17. So just give me, take me a little bit on your journey. How did you get to where you are today? So give me a little bit of a story about what was happening with you at 17 years old that the path that you went on, you know, ended up here. We all go through these, this journey, but talk about a little bit about when you were young like that, 17. So I, I, I'm an only child and, um, I am, an only child to um, immigrant parents. We came here um, in about 1980. I was about nine years old. And I had a volatile 
relationship with my mother um, on a good day. <laughs> and um, it, it all came from a place of love on her part and, and her desire to want to to make me independent and to make me strong. But her approach didn't always resonate. And, you know, we were in one of our heated discussions. Um, I remember I came home from school and I was just at the tail end of finishing my OACs, which is the Ontario Academic Credits, grade 13. I don't know if that still exists. Uh, but I came home in the afternoon and uh, we got into a debate or a heated discussion. And finally, she said, not under my roof yet again. So I said to her, do you want me to go? And she said, yes, I want you to go. I said, okay. Nothing else needs to be said. I went into my bedroom, I grabbed a garbage bag, and I packed into the garbage bag what I could find, what I, you know, what I could grab at that point. And I confidently and independently walked out that door. I had no idea where I was gonna go. I had no idea who I was gonna call. And on my we lived in an apartment, so I had about um, 14 floors to give it some thought. So when I uh, arrived on the ground floor, I remembered that there is a library across the street and there's a payphone at that library. So I marched over to that library and I called a guy named Rob, a guy that I just started dating. In fact, the week before I was at his house to meet his parents for the first time, very lovely people. And I called Rob because he had a car and I figured that he could give me a lift somewhere. And um, of course, Rob showed up and that somewhere ended up being him taking me to his house. So, you know, mom, dad, remember the girl I brought for dinner last week? Well, guess what? She has no home. <laughs> what can we do to help? And, you know, that was actually a really pivotal moment for me um, because Rob's parents uh, gave me um, such a warm welcome. They didn't judge. They didn't dismiss what was happening. They didn't belittle it. They had only one condition. If I were to stay there while I got back on my feet, that I needed to phone my parents and let them know I was okay. And so I basically lived at their house for about a month, a month and a half. I finished high school and I got two jobs. They lent me money to pay first and last month's rent. And I got my first apartment when I was um, just shy of being 18 years old. So you started with this kind of, you found yourself in a position where it was, you got to step up. You're, you know, you're probably saying to your mom, yourself, uh, there's no way, there's no hope in hell. I'm going home to mom and prove her right or that I need her. And so there's a bit of an independence that was just part of your character, even back at a, a young age. Do you see that today when you look back, you know, for maybe some younger listeners on that are listening to this particular cast, would you say that adversity that you faced and the challenges you faced with your mother actually in some reflection, and I, and I don't know the answer to this question, of course, but in some reflection, do you see where that was a big part of who you are today and how you show up and how you face adversity and, and how you take on whatever you take on in your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. I owe everything to how my mother shaped my character. And she continues to shape it. She continues to be demanding. She's still a big part of my life. She's a, a huge part of our family, of course. And we still have uh, some volatile moments. But as I've grown, I've, I've become a lot more accepting. And I, as a parent, I can completely now relate from where it's coming. I remember, you know, when she, when she would discipline me when I was younger and she would be restrictive and impose weird um, rules that made me feel awkward and not cool amongst my friends. You know, now as, as a parent, um, I, I hear her voice, you know, when you're a mother, <laughs> you're going to understand. Um, 
and I continue to understand. So absolutely, I owe my mom a tremendous amount of credit for helping shape who I am and how I handle adversity. I talk to people. It's, I mean, it's not uncommon to have stories about parents. And, and certainly I've talked to many people that, you know, had, had great parents and, and just are, have such a strong relationship with them. But I also talk to people who still hold a lot of resentment to parents in their past, you know, and here they are at 50 and I'm going, well, what, if you were to kind of reframe your relationship with your parents in a way that, you know, it is really who you become and the, you know, the role that they played in who you are today. And so it's interesting that you got that pretty loud and clear at a, at a young age and, and can see it in reflection. Now, you also went to university. You got, I believe you received a degree in, was it your, was Bachelor? it? Yeah. Yeah. Bachelor of Art. Now that you did that after you left home? Yes. So the story evolved. Um, I, I continued to date Rob and I was very close to his family. And uh, I was renting a room in a house that where I had three roommates. And those three roommates happened to be three grad students who were attending York University. And I was this, you know, young pup, really, that I felt that they kind of, you know, took under their wing. And you know, they kept asking me, you know, so what are you going to do with your life? You know, now you're living on your own. You've got this independence, you, you know, you're working. What's next? And nobody really talked about that with me. Nobody really prompted me to think about where I'm headed in the future. And I didn't really have an answer. And I would just, you know, obviously give them some fluffy answers and brush them off. But they kept coming back to this question. And finally, they sat me down. It was literally a household meeting where they sat me down, these three wonderful women who were pursuing educate, you know, higher education and, and going after their own futures. And they said, you're too good to waste your life. You need to go to university. And that was another very pivotal moment in my life, because if it wasn't for them seeing in me what I myself didn't really recognize, again, I wouldn't have pursued the, the path of university because I would have wanted to defy my mom because my mom always wanted me to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, you know, the usual stuff. And out of defiance, I wanted nothing to do with that. But because this message was coming through these three wonderful women that I, I was, you know, roommates with, and I really did respect them, I started to hear the message come at me in a different way. And I actually started to entertain the possibility. And then when I started talking to some friends and looking around what, you know, what the options are, somebody said, well, you know, here are the cool universities that you can go to. And University of Waterloo was one that came up in the list. And somebody said, yeah, but you, you know, University of Waterloo is not for you. You'll never get in. Well, <laughs> you just, you just put some fire under my butt. And that's when I thought, University of Waterloo, not for me, watch me. And uh, sure enough, I got into University of Waterloo. But when I got there, I realized that I should have done some due diligence because University of Waterloo was really for people who were pursuing engineering and mathematics. <laughs> and uh, and I am not a numbers person. I, I have a love-hate relationship with numbers, uh, primarily because I tend to be dyslexic around them. So I was totally out of my element, completely out of my element. Um, I cross-registered with Wilfrid Laurier University, which was in the same town. But um, it still wasn't enough. And that's where I realized, okay, I need to have a plan B. And I transferred to York University back to Toronto. But what was really cool about that experience, and, and I, I suspect that part of the reason I had to go through that was to open my eyes to the world of real estate investing. Because 
I lived off campus and my my boyfriend at the time, Rob, he had a brother, an older brother who had gone through University of Waterloo. And instead of renting, he purchased a property there, a student rental that had about five different rooms. So when I was going to go to University of Waterloo, his brother Andrew said, you know, I'll give you a discount if you will keep an eye out on, you know, what's happening in that house and kind of be my, you know, uh, caretaker, um, my eyes and ears. And I thought, oh, what a cool experience. And that was um, my one of my first forays into real estate investing um, because I realized, wow, you can make money by giving people who are going to university shelter. Wow, what an interesting concept. And it resonated. And then the other foray into real estate investing that I had was Rob's dad and mom owned a rental property in kind of uptown Toronto around St. Clair and Dufferin, a slightly undesirable area, if you ask me. But one of our dates um, once a month always entailed us driving by this property and picking up um, rent checks. And, you know, I was in the car, but the people that were answering the door were not desirable people. So my introduction to uh, tenants and toilets actually came um, quite young um, and it, le- it left an imprint, but I didn't do much with it until much later on. So you're young, you've gone to, you're going to university, you're kind of getting a sense of real estate. It's at least coming into your awareness and you're noting it. You came out of university, you have your degree. Now, did you go to work for somebody? Did you take on a job at that time? Yeah, the big J-O-B. <laughs> Absolutely. That was, you know, that, that was the norm. You go to university, you get a degree, and you go to work. I wanted a slightly different path. What I really wanted to do was actually go on in my university career. I got a bug for it. I really liked what um, the value of education was representing for me. I loved how it was opening up my mind, how it was challenging me. I really liked the experience. Not that I wanted to be one of those lifelong university students, but I saw the opportunity to uh, acquire an international MBA. York University just introduced a new program. And they called it the International MBA. And I really love the sound of that because I like the idea of um, the international landscape of business. And business is what I, you know, I, I had an entrepreneurial spirit that I uncovered through my undergrad years. And I really wanted to explore it. So I thought, well, the best way to explore it would be through an international MBA. Now, one of the re- prerequisites of the getting admitted to the international MBA at the time was that you needed to have two years experience abroad in order for them to consider you. Plus, you needed to have, you know, another language, which I do. Um, my mother tongue is Russian and I'm fluent. So I thought, OK, great. I got that. But I don't have the two years international experience. So I thought, hmm, what can I do to get international business experience? So, of course, in the news at the time, everything was all about how Russia was going through a huge transition. Uh, they called it perestroika. They called it glasnost, if you remember from the news. And I thought, huh, what resources do I have that I could put to work in this context? And I thought, hmm, I'm going to call up HR at Pepsi and tell them I'm graduating university soon and I'd like to work in their Moscow office. And I did exactly that. So you discovered you had that entrepreneurial spirit. Somewhere in there you had a drive to be entrepreneurial. Did you recognize it back then or is that kind of in reflection? Were you seeing that Once again, that's being innovative, that's being creative, that's looking into the future, that's saying, how do I get the outcome? And you're working backwards from an outcome that you you wanted to achieve. And that's not really 
you know, you see that in reflection, it all makes sense. And it's like so obvious. Do you think in the, the time it was, was it that obvious for you back then? Or was that, you know, now you look at it and it's just say, well, that's what I had to do. So that's what I did. And that was the nature of who I am and continue to be. And, and so you went, did you actually go, did you go get the job with Pepsi? Actually, I, I I did better than that. I figured, well, since I'm going to be in Moscow for a job interview with Pepsi, I might as well let Coca-Cola know that I'm coming to town and see if they have any openings. So what was nice is that Pepsi actually paid for my flight to go to be interviewed in Moscow for a job. And of course, Coca-Cola got to benefit because they got to interview me as well. The good news is, is that I got both opportunities offers. offered to me. Wow. And then I was like, wow, you know, I'm 22 years old. I'm getting um, a job offer of $65,000 annual salary, U.S. money, and I'm going to be a marketing manager uh, in their offices. And I thought, oh, which one? And they were pretty much offering the same thing. And I chose Pepsi. Mm. Would you like to know why? Yes. So back to the whole intention aspect. When I was younger, um, I was really in love with a teen idol, Michael Jackson. I just loved him. Everything about him was amazing. And I said to myself um, in my late teens that I would like to meet Michael Jackson. And I think I was daydreaming out loud when I was um, out with some friends and somebody heard me say that. And they said, cool, you should read the book, Think and Grow Rich. And I thought, what does that have to do with me meeting Michael Jackson? And my friend went on to say, just read the book. And I thought, okay, I'll read the book. If it's going to make me uh, allow me the opportunity to meet Michael Jackson, I'm going to read the book. And so I read the book. I read the book when I was about 18 or 19 years old. And it opened up my eyes to the possibility of designing a life that I could step into and love. And at the time, I thought, well, I don't believe any of this hokey pokey stuff, but I am going to test it. I want to do one thing and one thing only to prove whether or not this is legit. And I want to meet Michael Jackson. So the reason I chose the Pepsi job offer. He was, was endorsing Pepsi at the time. Sure. He was endorsing Pepsi. So I thought that might get me closer to my eventual goal. And I left it at that. So I created a desire, but I. I was somewhat detached from the outcome. I just had faith that things are going tickety-boo as they need to be. And that's it. So I took Pepsi's job offer. Three weeks into the job, I get a phone call from um, Austria. And they say to me, we have good news and we have bad news. And I go, okay, um, what's the good news? The good news is that Michael Jackson is going to be coming to Moscow on his Heal the World tour. And I'm like, Ah, okay, great. What's the bad news? Well, because there's some stuff in the news that wasn't in his favor, we really don't want people knowing about it. And I'm thinking, how can you not tell the world Michael Jackson is coming to Moscow? I thought, okay, fine, I'll keep it you know, under wraps, but this is really cool. And I can only work with the promoters quietly and secretly and, and not really promote it. And I hang up the phone and I'm like doing my little happy dance to myself. And about 20 minutes later, I get a phone call from the reception desk and the girl at reception says, um, CNN is here to see you. They want an interview about Michael Jackson coming to Moscow. I'm 22 years old, right. three weeks on the job. Yes. What to do? <laughs> you can't turn away CNN. No. So they basically prop me up on a stool, put lights, camera, 
uh, on me and started interviewing me about Michael Jackson coming to Moscow. And I gave them an interview and my interview aired. Luckily, I did not lose my job, but I had a very, very firm talking to from the, you know, the, the, the C-suite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so where did you get, did you actually, in fact, get to shake Michael Jackson's hand? Did you get an opportunity to meet him and uh, at least exchange hellos and a uh, brief handshake? Or how did that turn out? Absolutely. So about nine months later, I found myself backstage uh, just before his concert. And uh, we had a meet and greet where he walked into the room and he shook my hand. And I did a little presentation to a group of kids. Uh, Pepsi was donating a um, van that was re-outfitted to have a hydraulic lift system to transport children, um, foster children in wheelchairs. It was for a foster home that didn't have the funds to do this. So um, basically, as Pepsi, we got them this van and retrofitted it for a hydraulic uh, wheelchair lift system. And we were presenting the keys to this van backstage just before Michael went on. And, you know, Michael walked into the room, he greeted us, he shook our hands, he congratulated the the lady that represented the charity, he spoke to a couple of kids that were there in wheelchairs, and we took, you know, um, a photo together. And then on top of that, he autographed that photo, um, and it, it was sent in the mail to me. So I have a wonderful keepsake. Uh, but the highlight was actually a few, uh, you know, a few minutes later when um, when I was escorted to actually watch Michael Jackson perform from the lighting booth, which was situated on stilts right in the, you know, in the floors, right in front of the stage where, you know, the coveted seats are. Everybody wants to be in the floors right in front of the stage. And they created this big, um, this big structure on stilts. And that's where they operated the, the you know, the sound and the, and the lights. And I stood there with all those operators. And when Michael Jackson took the stage, that was the moment where I realized that the book that I had read had a lot of merit. Mm. And that that was a pivotal moment for me because it felt like Michael Jackson was on stage performing just for me to prove a point that the universe heard my desire and it enabled everything to come together in order to make this moment happen. And I became a believer. Wow. And what I'm guilty of as an interviewer is, uh, I'm told, uh, is asking too many questions in a row. And so I want to go back to where I started with this conversation. And and that is that, first off, this is happening at 22 or 23 years old, which, you know, being where I am in my life now and having had many staff and, and hiring many people and all of the things that I've achieved, it would be rare for me to find a 23-year-old of the character and the ability to do what it sounds like you were doing and to pull off what you pulled off. So that's the first observation in your story. The second part of that is I want to go back to you recognize the entrepreneurial side of you. You were very intentional all along. So in in who you were, were you just happening the way you were or were you actually reflective of who you were being and how you were showing up? I was quite conscious of it um, because my awareness had shifted through that book, through that experience with Michael Jackson, through the validation I vowed to myself that if I can validate that the stuff in this book is legit, then I need to shift my awareness and operate from a different place going forward. And that's what I started to do. I started to be a lot more deliberate, a lot more intentional, 
and working from the end goal was always kind of my approach, but I was more intentional and purposeful about it. Okay, so I'm going to go a little bit to kind of veer off in a slightly different direction um, because what I've discovered, of course, is that the people who achieve great results, the everyday millionaires that I've got to meet, are individuals who are very intentional. They are looking at themselves and reflecting on how they're being and how they're showing up. And in the world of real estate and even Pepsi, you know, that's a corporate world. This is, you know, it's not that you're old, but that's several years ago. And <laughs> you're kind of being a woman in a man's world, like right through that part of your life. And even today, I mean, real estate is certainly not just a man's world, but it's predominantly men. Back in the corporate world, I'm assuming back in the days of Pepsi and in Moscow is pretty dominated by men. And so it's interesting that you as a female are showing up that way. And so can you tell me a little bit about that? Was there a, once again, was it something that you consciously were aware of, of how you were being and how you were being in a man's world? Or how was that for you? For me, I was just being independent and strong the way my mother really raised me. But it was really not about me. Um, what happened was uh, how people started to receive me, how people started to respond to me. And that started to question whether or not I'm operating in a man's world as a woman and, and brought to the forefront the fact that you know, women are underrepresented and especially young women at the time and educated women. I mean, all of that was coming up because, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was confident. I was motivated. I was hardworking. And a lot of the adjectives that were used to describe me were not that favorable because there certainly was a, a gender gap. And there continued to be a gender gap as I went through my career. And, you know, that was just the beginning. And I, I went on after that into the corporate world, into the entrepreneurial world. And everywhere I was, there weren't a lot of women surrounding me at the higher management levels. Because when you start off in that position, you, you know, you, you keep going up and up and up. And I had a lot of very valuable experience, which warranted being hired for more demanding positions. And those more demanding positions primarily were occupied by men. Where it really became noticeable was after I had children. Up until that point, I was able to just kind of brush it off and, and, and go with it and roll with it. And um, there was a huge distinction in, in how I approached challenges and how men approach challenges. But I noticed that I wasn't given the same opportunities. Um, I wasn't given the same respect and the same credit as a lot of the men counterparts that I had worked alongside. And that was actually one of the reasons why I thought I need to back away from the corporate world and I need to apply everything I've got to doing what I really want to do, to what I where I feel I will add the most value without being, you know, without being compromised. And that's what started to happen. I had so much to give and I was being compromised. I actually remember one of my last job interviews in the corporate world where my boss sat across from me and he was the CEO and I reported directly to him and we had a, a review, you know, a standard review. And he said, you know, Rachel, I'm looking at your review here and I have to say you are up here 
in terms of um, your commitment, in terms of your hard work, in terms of your persistence, in terms of da, 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 the list went on and on. It says, but I need you to come down here a little bit because you're making the rest of us look bad. Wow. How did that make you feel? <laughs> That's when I decided I need to get out of the J-O-B situation and pursue what I really want to do and uh, pursue the entrepreneurial spirit that is, you know, bubbling within me. Let's talk about that a little bit. Would you say that interview, that job in, or job assessment, was that a kind of a fork in the road for you? Do you see that as that uh, turning point where you just had to make a decision and you said, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. I'm bigger, better. Why would I minimize myself around others? Was that a fork in the road for you? It was one of the forks. I had, uh, I actually hit the fork in the road a few years earlier than that, but this, um, you know, this job, um, conversation that this review was more of a catalyst for me to take serious action and stop doubting and start doing. So given the character, how you evolved as a young lady and the corporate background, all of the things that you've got going on and where you are today in your business, and we'll talk about that in a little while, but how do you define success? That's a great question. For me personally, the definition of success is setting goals that you continuously work towards, not necessarily perfectly achieve them, but progress towards them. As long as there's progress and as long as you're getting close to achieving what it is you're achieving, that is success. Success is something that you live on a daily basis. And as long as I'm progressing towards what I want to achieve, I feel I'm successful. It's not a finite definition. I live success every single day. So that's by design. Some time ago, you know, one of a rain happened to be a rain member, you know, looked at me and, and he knows me as a business owner and the things that I do in real estate and other businesses. And he asked me, he said, Patrick, he says, how many hours a week do you work? And it really threw me off. And I, the response was quite easy. I said, I don't know. I don't keep track. And I don't look at it that way. I have a life and my life includes my business. And so I look at it and go, how is my life? And so when I'm working or not working, it's just part of my life. And because I love what I do, I don't count hours. It's just my life. So I only assess where I'm at by saying, am I happy with my life? Am I happy with the relationships in my life? Am I happy with the results I'm getting? Am I living the kind of life I want? And that's my perspective of it. To your phrase of, you know, or to your kind of definition of success, you're working, it's it's not an end result. It's not a thing. It's not something you get to. Uh, it's, you're working on it all the time. In other conversations you and I have had, you're pretty intentional about you, what you want your life to be and how you want it to be and the time you spend with your children. And and uh, I want to talk about Neil, by the way, and um, and just your family. So is that something that you... I know you're intentional about it, but how do you work on it? How do you look at your life and your business and all of the things that you've got going on? What's your kind of general philosophy around that? Well, for me, having um, having the flexibility 
to be spontaneous, um, having the flexibility to spend time where I want to spend time with and spend time with whom I want to spend time with. That is really what I strive for. And my family obviously takes first place because my kids are young. I have um, an 11-year-old and uh, a six-year-old. And they're growing. They're growing so quickly. And one of the things that I remember when I was a, a young child is that my parents were so tied up with trying to make a new life for, for us in Canada. They were working crazy hours. You know, you're, you're speaking to how many hours a week do you work? I, you know, I, I think my parents were putting in 60 hour weeks, um, minimum, and they didn't have time for me. They didn't have time to sit down and talk to me about how my day at school was because they were too busy getting ready for, they owned a restaurant. They were, you know, getting ready for the, the dinner crowd or prepping for the next day. And putting food on the table really was their priority. And they didn't get to know who I was as a person and some of the challenges that I was dealing with and some of the um, ideas that I wanted to share with them. They, they did not have time for it. And there was a huge cultural uh, difference as well, because, you know, here they are, you know, Russian immigrants, not really understanding the English language, not understanding the English culture. And I'm kind of wedged between the two. I understand their world and I'm immersed in a new culture and a new world and, you know, trying to assimilate and learn the new language at an accelerated pace. So there's a lot happening and my parents didn't have the time. And I remember wanting my parents to have the time. So when I had the opportunity to become a mom and a parent, for me, that was such an important goal to be able to have the time and the flexibility to be there for my kids as much or as little that they needed me. So I designed my life around achieving that goal. And you're living that today. Now, Absolutely. as you've grown your financial wealth and your real estate portfolio, you've done that through helping others have success. You have obviously at some level been guiding and coaching people. Would that be a fair statement? Probably indirectly, I would say. Right. So first I'll ask you a little bit about more about your family. And then I want to go back to how you support others in succeeding. Do your children see you the same way in terms of how you support other people? Is that kind of a, is that a, a thing that you do with your kids that you're actually teaching them and training them how to look at people, how to support others in, in succeeding? Is that, you know, basically your philosophy that you and, and Neil have? Absolutely. My mom often grew up, uh, or I grew up listening to my mom say, do as I say, not as I do. And as I was growing up, that always felt off. So when I became a parent, I realized that there's no place for that. You know, you can't say to a child, don't mind what I'm doing, do it this way instead. Don't repeat my mistakes, do it this way instead. That was incongruent to me. So I very quickly realized that I need to show my children what I mean and say what I mean and do what I mean and model it for them because children first and foremost watch. They, <laughs> I, I've learned that they hear second, <laughs> but they, they see first. And if I'm modeling what I want them to learn and then I, I am repeating that with words and phrases and in conversation, it's going to cement these ideas for my kids. So absolutely, I, I teach my children where the gaps were for me my mom did a phenomenal job in instilling a lot of wonderful stuff, 
but there were some gaps. And, you know, in reflecting on those gaps, I'm now trying to fill in those gaps and bring in all the goodness that my mom did um, leave me with. That's interesting. Part of what I bring up around that, Rachel, is that your story and how you are, you're, you're very intentional about your, I'm going to say, even beyond intentional, you're very mindful or thoughtful of all of the things that you're doing, how you're designing your life, how you're being with your children, how you were at 22 years old and 17 years old. So it's an interesting characteristic that I often see is the case with many of the individuals that not only have achieved great wealth, but also have a great life. Because I've certainly met lots of people who, and I've spoke with many people who have got a lot of money, but their life is just really not all that awesome. So I want to point that out because as, as part of my, I guess my intention, my mandate around this podcast is to really teach people how to, not only how to create wealth, but who you need to be to have a great life as you create wealth. And so I see where you're thoughtful and mindful about that. So I just want to kind of point that out. Tell me about Mr. No. <laughs> well, first and foremost, I have to admit that I manifested Mr. No. Of course, so of course have... you did. Of course you did. How else would it have shown up? That, that's right. I, you know, I go from manifesting Michael Jackson to manifesting my husband. And um, he's, the, you know, in many cases, in, in many regards, he is quite opposite of me, but he's also very complimentary. He is an extremely intelligent person. But what I what I noticed most about him is that he was very cautious to step into that knowing. And, you know, to your point earlier, you know, have I coached people uh, along the way unintentionally? He's probably been one of the most important people I've had the opportunity to influence through my quote unquote coaching. And I helped him see where he was, you know, areas where he himself was not seeing and lift him up in places where he was selling himself short. And he stepped into that and he embraced it. I mean, it's obviously a, a continuous process for both of us, but in return, he has been able to compliment me in many ways. And one of the things that I wanted um, in a partner was someone who could love me for who I am give me, you know, give me the freedom to be who I am, but at the same time ground me when I am floating, you know, somewhere too high. And certainly that's exactly what his role ended up being. So back to the whole point of manifesting, I wanted a partner that allows me to get grounded. So Mr. No, in his essence, does exactly that because that's what I wanted. Now, sometimes he, he says no more often than I'd like. And, you know, it's, it's just an ongoing joke now. But here's what the interesting part is, is that I have learned how to change the question so that Mr. No doesn't have an opportunity to say no. <laughs> and <laughs> Okay, I don't know if you want to share that secret with the audience here. Well, you know, sometimes it's just about, the, but this is actually part of my growth strategy as well in that I keep asking a certain question and I keep getting a certain answer that I don't want. And it finally dawned on me, well, what if I change the question? Won't that warrant a different answer? And, and I think this is really a euphemism for all things in life. If you're not getting the answer you want, change the question. And so how does that show up with, in this case, can you give us an example of what that might look like with 
Neil, does, uh, or, or anybody for that matter. I mean, obviously you are somebody who wants to get the answers you want to get. And so where does that kind of thought process, how does it show up? Is there something that you can share with us in that regard? Yeah, well, Neil uh, is the kind of guy that uh, once he steps uh, out of his comfort zone and steps into a new comfort zone, he wants to unpack his bags and live there for a long time. Whereas me, I was like, okay, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, let's pack up our bags and move into a different comfort zone. He's like, no, not ready to go, kind of like it here, so let's just stay here a little bit longer. And that's really kind of how, you know, the whole rent-to-own business is feeling right now. We've been at this for, you know, um, over seven years at this point, and I'm ready to move out of this comfort zone and, and add another layer to it. So the other layer that I'm interested in is, uh, getting involved in, in flips and it's, you know, it's, it's a totally new ball game and I'm, you know, I'm starting to pave the path to, to, get educated, to get the right network in place and planning financially to make it happen. But I'm noticing he's resisting. I'm noticing he's uneasy about it. So this is very familiar. I've been here before. So instead of saying, you know, uh, are you ready to do flips with me? Which I've been saying for a little while now, and I'm still getting the no answer. I finally realized that the question has to be, what's it going to take for you to be on board? Hmm. So you're really examining where he's stuck or where he's feeling uncomfortable to go forward to stretch. And whenever people stretch, there's a, a level of discomfort. So you're actually saying, what do you need to be comfortable in moving forward as opposed to trying to drag him through the process? So that becomes about communication and asking great questions. Got it. So that's awesome. So how's that working for you? Well, we've actually identified some action items that we both need to take in order for him to feel a little bit more comfortable to move forward. And it really is a, a progressive path. It's, you know, I'm, I can, I can go from here, you know, from one small spot and take a giant leap and I'm comfortable with the consequences of the discomfort. Whereas Neil, he's a little bit more deliberate. He likes the baby steps. And for me, it's just a question of slowing down and, and acknowledging that and going at his pace. But at some point we get to a critical mass of, of him feeling knowledgeable and empowered. And that's, and it's important again, in the communication to recognize that phase. And that's when I can say, okay, let's fast track. Let's make up for all the lost time that's coming later. He's he, we're not in that phase yet, but I'm, I'm always looking of how, how can I support him yet satisfy my desire to move faster? And it's a balancing act. So, you know, there's a phrase, you know, if I, you know, there, there, of course, the most common phrase is behind every great man is a great or greater woman, perhaps whatever the exact languaging is. So in your case, obviously, the relationship that you and Neil have is something that's very, very important for you. And it contributes to the success that you have. So in your case behind every great man is or behind every great woman is a, a great a great guy in your case neil and it, it, he seems to play the role of supporting that entrepreneurial driver that you are and he comes in and intelligently and he's a smart guy no doubt about it but that relationship that he has and that you guys have together is one that i'm sure is of communication and intentional and he knows how to support you you know how to support him so I guess, you know, as I, as I go through these conversations with 
the everyday millionaires that I've come to know, time and time again, relationship is a big deal. I would have to say that I owe, I, I can't even say my success, but I just know my wife, Stephanie, how well she supports me in our businesses and what we do and what an important part and what an important role she plays right across. And not just in the doing this, but in the, you know, the mental and emotional stretch that she can, she can create and the push that I think maybe that's something as a man, I'm recognizing only women can do that. It's like the only, they can really draw the best out of a guy. And you're doing that with uh, Mr. No, which I know is just a little bit tongue in cheek and lots of fun because of how you built your business. Now, so that's great, by the way. Now, the RTO side of it, you've been doing it for seven years. You've built a great portfolio. You've helped a lot of people. And why do you want to expand? What, what is the, you know, what's your motivating factor behind growing or going into this renovate and flip strategy? Well, with, you know, with any um, wealth building uh, strategy, you need to have multiple streams of income. And although initially I kind of introduced Neil to the idea of rent to own using the multiple stream of income angle, you know, because obviously one property, two properties, three properties, technically each property is its own stream of income. That's great. But now we, you know, we have all of our eggs in a particular basket. So yes, although we have multiple streams within the RTO basket, I feel that there's other opportunities. And I, I think we, we're missing opportunities now that our, you know, our net worth is, you know, a lot more substantial than when it was a few years back when we first got started and ramped up. I feel that if we don't take all of the financial gain and financial success that we've created and apply it to create other streams of income, we are not advancing ourselves. We are not doing ourselves any favors. So it, it really is anchored in that. And then, you know, once I master uh, that type of real estate strategy, I'm going to move on to the next one. Um, I, I've always admired people who can come into, you know, the real estate investing industry and do, you know, flips and multiplexes and duplexes and, you know, rent to owns. And, and their portfolio is so, so rich with different strategies. I've always admired them. My mind doesn't work that way. I really like to have a very specific path, a specific direction master that, feel confident that it's running tickety-boo, and then I move on and I change my focus. And maybe that has something to do with aging. <laughs> I can't I can't multitask the same way I used to before. Um, but also it, ha it goes back to me wanting to have the flexibility to control my time, to be spontaneous um, for my kids. And if I dilute my focus in too many different directions, I feel that I will fail at something. And I, I don't want to set myself up for that. So I really need to kind of slowly and deliberately, uh, shift, shift what I focus on. Okay. So it sounds like failure is not an option, but let me ask you this question. What was your biggest failure that turned out to be a blessing in disguise for you? Well, I don't know if you would call this a failure at the time, you know, most people probably wouldn't even describe it as a failure, but I felt like a failure when it happened. And that actually comes, um, going back to 2005 when, um, my, my first daughter uh, was born, she was, uh, about six weeks old when I got the diagnosis that I have breast cancer and the diagnosis itself was not the, the part that, you know, really 
threw me off. It was the fact that the doctor said, I need to stop breastfeeding my newborn cold turkey because I'm going to be in for quite a ride to deal with my health diagnosis. At that moment, I felt to be the biggest failure of my life. Wow. Interesting. Let's talk about that a little bit. Now, in your, when was your breast cancer battle? When did that happen? I was diagnosed in March of 2005. Now, this many years later, you're cancer-free. How did you deal with that? How was that for you? I've, I've had two sisters in just the past few years uh, pass away from cancer. Cancer is a, you know, a big, you know, just every time you turn around, it seems like somebody else is dealing with cancer. When you got the diagnosis of breast cancer, what was your immediate, how did, it, how did it make you feel? Like, where did you go with the battle and how, did, how is it that for you today? Well, I went on autopilot. I, I did what I had to do first and foremost to, to serve my baby. Um, I don't know if it was a hormonal response. Um, I, I'd never had babies prior to that. So I, I, you know, it was a first, my, my baby was a newborn and she needed a mom and she needed a mom to be strong and together. And that's really the role that I played. I thought, you know, what do I need in order for my baby to, to feel loved, to, to feel adored, to feel supported and, and, and cared for. And that's what I did. I, I basically um, found moments where I couldn't be there for her because I was in treatments and in appointments and uh, and preoccupied. I found other loving people in my family who who would spend the time with her and um, not make her feel like she was missing out on an opportunity to be loved. It was really just a, a question of orchestrating different things in my world to support what I needed to do and leverage the wonderful people in my life. And that's where family really came to the surface. And that's back to the whole point. You know, people helped me in a moment where I needed the help and they elevated me. And in that moment of being elevated, it cemented the fact that when I have an opportunity to do the same for others, I absolutely will never second guess it. Thanks for sharing that. That's interesting to look back at the time, I'm sure. and. Was there a time when you were just angry because of it? Were you just mad at the world? How did you feel about it at that time? I was never mad about the cancer. I wasn't one of those people who sat back and said, why me? I had enough wonderful people in my life doing that on my behalf. What I was angry about was that cancer took away my time. It took away my control of my life. It put me in a state of not knowing what's going to be happening tomorrow and whether I'm going to make it. Everyone, you know, in the medical world was putting the fear of doubt and contributing to a sense of anxiety. And I don't operate from a place like that. I'm a glasses half full kind of person. And I was angry that everybody kept dragging me down to the glasses half empty level. So I got sick and tired of that. I got sick and tired of the quality of life that having a label of having breast cancer was creating. That's what really fired me up. That's what created a fork in the road for me to want to say, okay, I can't bring back the time that I lost because the first six months of my motherhood with my brand new baby was a total blur. I missed a lot of precious firsts and I can't ever bring them back. And on top of that, I was told by the doctors that I should never have any more children again because the original breast cancer surfaced when I was pregnant with my first daughter. 
So the doctor said, it's completely unadvisable for me to have any more children. Furthermore, they wanted me to go through a bunch of surgeries that would negate me having any more children. And that is when I put my foot down and said, enough is enough. This is my body. This is my life. I'm going to take charge and I'm going to do what I feel needs to be done, regardless of medical statistics, regardless of medical advice, and regardless of the fearful side of all the people that love me and mean well. You know, as as we sit here chatting today, first off, thank you for being you know so open to the conversation around this, Rachel. But you come across as so incredibly confident, so definitive, so thoughtful. Have you always been this confident? Was there a time when you didn't feel this kind of confidence? There's always a time when I don't feel this confident. Every time I step into something new that allows me to grow and advance, there is a sense of discomfort. And with that discomfort comes a little bit of a lack of confidence. But I always have this little thing in my head where I'm kind of saying, okay, well, I could get lost in this moment of of lack of confidence, or I can keep my focus on where this extra step of discomfort is actually going to take me. And what's more interesting, where I'm going or where I'm stuck right now? It's really about self-talk. It's really about the communicate. You know, you mentioned the, the, the importance of communication in a relationship. Your first and foremost relationship is with you. Your first and foremost conversation is with you because whatever is happening on the inside with your own conversation is really going to shape your outside world. And I learned that very early on and I live that every single day. And because I have that, that conversation happening, it allows me to empower and enrich all the other people that are connected to me. So your life is really a reflection of how you think and how you approach life. You certainly see it that way. There's a lot of what I'm seeing in this is around your mindset. Are you, there's, you know, there's certain parts of our character and certain parts of your character that, you know, showed up at a very young age. And as I speak with you and as you chat, I see that very consistently those characteristics show up, you know, just in your languaging and how you're describing some of these, uh, these things of your life. Are you very conscious about your mindset? And I know you read the book, Think and Grow Rich. Is that kind of a journey that you go on on an ongoing basis where you're reading and examining and really reflecting on who you are and you're actually being intentional about how you look at things, how you're, how you think about things. And is that part of your own training? Is that part of how you develop yourself as well? Absolutely. It, you know, we are, you know, I think we've heard the, the phrase, you know, if we're not growing, we're dying. And that's exactly, I, I came to a crossroad with that realization when I was dealing with breast cancer. I said, you know, the doctors are basically telling me I'm dying. I refuse to believe that. So what do I need to do to prove that otherwise? And that's where I realized that, you know, it's all about progression and growth. And how do I empower the growth? Um, you know, mindset is the first thing that, um, you know, my body was maybe failing me and it obviously was compromised, but my mind was just fine. And I thought I have absolutely no excuse. I've got a brilliant mind and I need to use it. And if I can get through that moment, if I can get through the next challenging moment and the next and the next, it just becomes a building block of progression and I can do it with my mind and eventually things will 
work themselves out. And 11 years later, I still approach every single step I take from that place. And it is a consistent growth. And it's consi- you have to keep sharpening that capability. So, you know, to that extent, when, you know, when things aren't going right, when, you know, when the yogurt really is hitting the fan and you're having a really like awful day, whatever that might be, what's some of the self-talk that you have to get through those challenges that are pretty normal in life? And some of them are, and especially in the world of real estate and the deal, you know, in working with tenants or tenant buyers, I'm sure it's not all perfect. And some things go, uh, you know, off the rails a little bit. So what's your self-talk around those challenging times when you, uh, you know, maybe want to punch the wall or something? You know, sometimes uh, it's not about the talk. It's about the movement. Um, You know, I'm a huge fan of Tony Robbins, and he's top of mind because I saw him over the weekend um, when he came to Toronto. You know, he's all about changing your state. So sometimes it's difficult to get into a a moment of positive self-talk because things come up and you're, you're burning up with, you know, anger or, um, you know, upset that, you know, you, you, you can't activate that smart self-talk easily. So the easiest thing that I find that I need to do is jump, (laughs) actually jumping up and down releases, um, neurotransmitters and allow me to get into a different frame of mind. It's an actual physiological process. And the state of jumping to me means going up, going high anywhere, but where I am now. So once I stop the jumping, then I can come back down and say, okay, the next question is, what do you want? You don't like what's happening now. What do you want? So I try to lose myself in the, what I want to happen versus what's happening. That's making me unhappy or uncomfortable or upset. So a couple of questions. Once again, I'm going to take this in a little slightly different direction. What insights in your life or business have you gained over the past number of years that just seems so obvious to you, but doesn't seem that obvious to others. Well, I think you you addressed it earlier. You recognize that you you know that I operate from a place of where I want to be versus where I am, and a lot of people get trapped in looking at you know the bank account or looking at the bills or looking at the relationship as it is today, and they say you know it's all hopeless. You know, look what I have going on now. How can I possibly get beyond this? And for me, that you know, all of that kind of back to my days of when I was dealing with the cancer, that's just like unnecessary noise. And I can choose, I can consciously choose to shut out that noise and literally turn away from it and look to where I want things to be and lose myself in, in my vision of, of Belize, you know, lose myself in what, what my life really will be like if I put my focus towards that. So for me, this is, this is second nature. I operate from this place with everything in my life. And it, it's an obvious thing, um, but not everybody seems to have the knack for that. Now, once again, it's obvious to you and you, you exercise that. I want to come back as, of course, being speakers and being in the business we are in terms of training people and doing the things we do. We, you know, we often will use the phrase shelf help books. Because there's so much guidance out there. There's so many things that people buy, they spend money. You mentioned Tony Robbins. And you think about Tony Robbins, the what he's created in his life, but for others, 
yet not everybody will buy that book, buy that program, and do anything with it. Is that something that you make a commitment to? Or once again, is this just who you are? Or is are you really intentional about it? So you're, you're right. There's a lot of self-help stuff out there. And there's, you know, almost a guru. There, there's as many gurus out there as there are uh, Tim Hortons, I think. And I think for me, it's about understanding when the time is right for a particular solution. So yes, there's all of these opportunities. There's uh, to learn, to get coached, to get mentored, to read, you know, to take courses, uh, webinars and such. But to me, I think really it's all about timing because we don't eat all day long. We only eat when we're really hungry. We don't drink all day long. We drink when we're thirsty. I think the self-help stuff and, you know, the personal advancement is really, um, all about that. When do you need to be enriched? You need to tune into that. That's where you need to have self-awareness and the self-conversations and the self-talk. When is the time for you to get that nourishment? When you take, when you recognize that it's time for you to get nourished and uplifted by somebody outside of yourself or somebody outside of your immediate social circle, that's when you will look at, okay, great. I am now in the context of needing the guidance um, or the enrichment who is going to serve that need the best. And once you're aware of what it is you're looking for, then you'll be a lot more deliberate in, you know, sometimes you just walk through chapters and a book calls out to you. Well, that particular book is probably in response to uh, something that you had considered or thought about in terms of needing to go from where you are now to the next place. I don't believe in coincidences. I'm always very, very deliberate ab about recognizing opportunities that come in front of me. And I, I try to get the clues and I try to be connected to the clues that surround me. It's not always easy, but you have to be connected to what it is you want and recognize when there's clues coming at you that help you solve that need. Often when I talk to very successful women like yourself, they will refer to their intuition and that they tap into their intuition, their heart. It really is not about what they're thinking. It's about what they're feeling. Is that the case for you? Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes we get stuck in analyzing what's in our brain and we approach things from the place of our head. But really, we need to take a step back and feel what's in our heart. And intuition is highly connected to your heart and how you feel, how, how you, you know, I call it a vibration. People can call it feelings. I call it a vibration. How am I vibrating? Am I, am I vibrating um, in a way that makes me feel good and balanced? Or am I vibrating um, and feeling a, a little bit off kilter? And it's a feeling. So if you were giving guidance to other women listening to this podcast and you've done some great things in your business, in your RTO business and your rent-to-own business, you've grown your portfolio, you've raised children, you've got a great relationship with your husband. So I'm going to take the obvious things off the list, like relationship and being smart and all those things. If you're guiding other women that wanted to achieve the kind of success that you have, can you identify the top three things that you would give them some advice of, some top three tips that you would guide them with? Well, the first thing I would say is identify your why 
and be very, very, very truthful about your why, no matter how ridiculous it might seem or no matter how other people will judge you. We oftentimes operate from a place of thinking about how others will receive us, how others will think of us. And we make choices that maybe limit us because we're so concerned about others. But sometimes you need to kind of think, you know, we've heard the phrase, um, you know, when there's an emergency and that uh, oxygen mask falls out, put your oxygen mask on first and then assist the people Mm -hmm. beside you. Sure. You got to give yourself the oxygen mask first, no matter what anybody, you know, at at first thought you think, oh, if I give, put the oxygen mask on my face first, the, the people beside me must think that I don't care about them, don't love them as much. And I'm selfish. And I think as women, for some reason, we get caught up in that thinking and we need to move past it because when we have the oxygen mask on, we have the opportunity to elevate and enrich so many people uh, beyond, you know, beyond the, the limited thought. So that's one thing, you know, don't worry about the judgment and put your own oxygen mask on first. And then you also need to understand what are you working towards? Uh, I, I like my, my quote in life is, you know, where there's a why, there's a way. If you have a very clear, strong reason for doing what it is that you're doing, judgment aside by anybody else, you will find a way. The way will make its, its way to you and you'll, you'll become unstoppable. So identify that why and be very, 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 very honest. And sometimes the changes that have to take place in order to allow you to achieve what it is you're trying to achieve are going to be uncomfortable. They're going to be unpleasant. And that's okay because part of cleaning up something involves taking out the trash. It involves decluttering. And sometimes people are afraid of that. So they think small, especially women. And I would encourage women to think big, make that why as big as you can, because if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, if it doesn't create butterflies in your stomach at the thought of it, then it's not big enough. You know, one of the things that I've learned from my wife over the many years that I've been with her and and she is a coach and all the things that she's done and achieved is pretty amazing. But one thing that I've learned and I want to because you, you said, it, you know, give yourself the oxygen mask first. And women are very unique in who they are in the, you know, the family dynamic and in the dynamic of life overall. And what I learned is that the more that they are actually, they, their sense is that they're, they're selfish, but the reality of it is, is that the better they look after themselves, the more capacity that they have to do what they're brilliant at. And that is to look after those around them which is, you know, you as a mom and you as a wife and you as a business owner, if you don't look after yourself, you just don't have the capacity to do that. I would ask, you know, you in in your experience, do you surround yourself with other powerful women? Are you, is that something that you do as part of your own, I guess, you know, work? Do you, do you make sure that you're communicating well with other women? Hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that because I thought of one more thing to suggest, um, in regards to your last question, and that was create relationships that empower you and elevate you because you can't have success and growth in, in a silo. So I'm, I'm kind of, you know, bookending two questions here. So, um, to answer your second question here, do I surround myself with other powerful women? 
It's funny because I never had the need or I never identified myself as a powerful woman. I, I, I never labeled myself as such. I just did what I felt was right for me and my family. But in recent years, especially uh, being part of the real estate investing community, I have heard people respond to me that way. And I've also noticed that there is a, a smaller number of women represented in this industry, like in, you know, in, in the corporate world, I, I, I started to continue to see that pattern. And I realized that, you know, it would be great to have more women. It would be great to, to see more powerful women have a presence. And I finally to my earlier point, realized that I am thirsty for that company myself. I never really had a thirst for it up until possibly about a year ago or so, where I realized that I want to be in the company of other powerful women because people tell me that I'm powerful and they love being in my company. I thought, wow, I wonder how that feels. So I need to expand my social circle and I need to expand my network to allow those types of women to come in. And the biggest reason that I didn't do that earlier, I really realized that I was always nervous that I wouldn't have anything to add to their world. I was always second guessing my value. And I think as women, we perpetuate that, that idea that we're not worthy. And I did it as well. And I had to, you know, it took me a long time to come to this point. Um, but but I have to say, it's a work in progress. And now I am surrounded by powerful women and I'm growing that network and I, and I want to add value and I am adding value to their world as much as they're adding um, value to my world. Okay, so let me take it off once again. You know, this is about really helping the listeners and, you know, some guidance along the way. So the powerful Rachel Oliver that sits before us today and shows up and I remember really only meeting you for the first time back, you know, really late 2016. And I mean, you had me at hello, you know, just the way you occur and the way you show up. And it's been awesome to have you on our stage and to share your your knowledge and your insights. But as you sit here today, the Rachel Oliver that you are, what would you tell the Rachel Oliver of a 20-year-old? Job well done? Or would you, you know, in reflection, would you share some other guidance with her today? Oh my goodness. I think it would be a combination of the two. I, I think, I think first of all, the advice would be get started with real estate investing way sooner, girl, <laughs> instead right. of occupying a student rental back at uh, university of Waterloo, I should buy the building. <laughs> <laughs> buy the building. <laughs> Absolutely. As many yes. of them as you can. Um, yeah, what <laughs> what I realized is my goodness, the, the, the world was my oyster back then. And I, I, you know, didn't take advantage of it. But at the same point, I, I think I did a great job with what I had and the clues that were seated for me, I picked up on them. So I, I would definitely pat myself on the back and say, you know, there's still room for improvement and you're on your way. I'm pretty proud of the Rachel that I am today. Yes. What about your 60 year old self? What is yourself today? What do you want to, what would you tell your 60 year old self when you look into the future? What would you like to say to that 60 year old Rachel? 60 year old Rachel, you should have used eye cream earlier. <laughs> you should buy more real estate. Should have bought more real estate. 
Um, yeah, I, yeah. Buy more real estate and hydrate your skin. I think those are the two, two things that I, <laughs> I would um, say to myself, but you know what? I, I think at 60 years old, I would like to look back and celebrate the success that I have, um, that I'm seeing my children have with anything in life, but particularly I want them to get started with real estate uh, much sooner. Uh, you know, our, our goal is by the time my daughters are 18 years old, that each of them owns um, a property or two in tandem of pursuing whatever it is that will fire them up. And as a 60-year-old, I will stand there knowing that I did everything I can or could have in order to enable their happiness and their success and their great health. Well said. So as we wind down our conversation today, I'd like to just have a few rapid-fire questions just to have some fun and see what shows up. What's your favorite swear word? You actually want me to say it like... On the podcast? Well, do you actually have one? That is it. Is it? Is it the infamous f bomb? Well, I combine the f bomb with the s bomb. <laughs> well done. Okay. <laughs> you seem. You appear so innocent. You know. Other than real estate, what profession would you have liked to attempt? I think, you know, and my mom would love this if she heard this. I think I would have pursued law. Hmm. I could see where that would, you would be a scary lawyer. I would want you on my team, not somebody else's <laughs> team. If heaven exists, and we're not here to debate whether it does, if it did, what would you like to hear God say when you arrived at the pearly gates? You made a positive difference for thousands of people on earth. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Nine. <laughs> okay. What are you not very good at? Because you just seem so good at so many things. What are you not good at? Numbers. Oh, the math challenges. Yes. Room, desk, or car. What do you clean first? Room. Favorite song? I would have to say Killing Me Softly by Lauren Hill. Favorite movie? Thelma and Louise. Oh, good movie. Yes. What are you grateful for? I'm grateful for being present, for being aware of all the wonderful things that I have in my life to celebrate. Great answers. Rachel, I want to thank you for being on the show today. There's some great lessons for anybody, I believe, who's listening to this podcast. Is there anything that you would like to finish? Is there anything that you want to share before we sign off? I think in parting, I would just like to say, when you have a strong why, you'll find a way, no matter how difficult the path might be, no matter what adversity you're facing. You're certainly a strong testament for that. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.